Hey, what's up, guys? This is Coach Brian from PCI Jiu-Jitsu and the Level Up Grappling Podcast. So stay tuned for a two-part series with my good buddy, the legend Steve Silvers. So we are going to have some fun. This is a very long podcast, so we split it into two parts. So part one is this week. Part two is going to be next week. Stick with us. Enjoy it get into it, laugh with us, and you're going to love this week, and you're going to love part two, and we're definitely having Steve Silver's back. And welcome back to the Level Up Grappling Podcast. I'm your host, Ed, along with Coach Brian here today for episode number two, and we've got our first guest, uh, Coach Brian, if you'd like to introduce our guest. We've got the legend, Steve Silvers, a.k.a. the Godia Guard Puller. Why in the hell he's calling himself a guard puller, I don't know. I'm going to have a heart attack, and we're going to talk about it. But uh, so I, I want to tell you all something. This is really funny. This is like Steve's like my brother from another mother. <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys a funny story. So. First of all, we're going to try and make sure we keep this podcast today concise because when me and Steve talk, literally, we'll talk for hours. We've, in fact, shut down an acai restaurant, just the two of us sitting there until closing times, and then talk afterwards outside. So we don't stop, unfortunately. So get this, guys. This is really funny. Steve's a musician. I'm a musician, right? I play guitar. He plays drums. We both were monks in India different times of the of um the years but we were both monks in india uh basically in the same region we're both plant-based eaters we don't eat animals we both do jujitsu <laughs> so like our the lineup and you know, we have like so many friends in common right so the lineup of what we have together is like crazy in terms of how many similarities we have and so Steve's also a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's also an aficionado in other martial arts styles as well. He's a three-time Masters no-gi world champion, which I think is really cool. And uh, he has a lot of students all over the world. And I think, Steve, do you still have your school in Portland, or what did you do with that? Um, I don't actually have a location in Portland, although my students are training together there still. They're back in the garage where they belong. So, okay. All right. There you go. So do you want, you want to, uh, hopefully that was enough of an introduction for you. Do you want to like give your, your background a little bit uh, for the grappling community about your grappling history and all that fun stuff? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, like, um, like a lot of people, obviously I was influenced by the UFC. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up in England and um, I did... Uh, some martial arts and was involved in, you know, different kinds of informal training, if you can call it training, mainly fighting, um, but we'll loosely call it training. Um, and uh, so when the UFC rolled around, um, obviously it was a big eye opener. And um, I actually had a couple of friends. Um, I remember the first time I saw it was UFC 2. I saw it um, while I was in India and um, um, I had a um, a friend that uh, I grew up with kind of training and, you know, and, and often, you know, we were super good friends. So like brothers, we fought. So, uh, you know, we would, 
you know, he would he would bring in, hey, I just I just saw this amazing technique from Indonesian Salat. Let's try it. And, you know, so we would try different things. And, you know, I, I always remember this one day when uh, we were just sat down and we were watching the, Uf the first UFC together. and We were just looking at each other like, uh oh, this is going to change some things. And so, you know, we started mm -hmm. imitating Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as much as we could figure it out. And uh, and then I had a, a friend who actually went to Brazil and trained with the Gracies in Brazil in the 90s. And um, and he came back uh, to England. And I remember we we sparred together and I couldn't even lay a hand on him. And, you know, the difference back in the day between the striking arts and the grappling arts were so huge that it was literally like, you know, jujitsu was literally at that point like a superpower, like you just couldn't touch people. And especially, unfortunately, coming from England, um, I, um, I had no wrestling background. Um, and so, you know, my, my preconception to going to the ground was basically, you, that's where you go to die. Because whenever fights would hit the ground, that was it, it was mm -hmm. over. Or, you know, somebody would just jump in because for some reason, no one seems to like to see people grappling. And uh, that seems to be still the case, you know, when you watch YouTube. Um, so eventually that was my informal introduction to grappling. And then, um, in 2003, um, I was living in Los Angeles and, uh, I, um, there was only one person that I ever wanted to train with in terms of starting jujitsu and that was Hicks and Gracie. So I signed up with Hicks and Gracie. Uh, uh, his academy at that point was in Santa Monica on Wilshire Boulevard. And so, um, I signed up with him and, that's where I started my formal training. So what was that like, training over there at Hickson's? Was he actually teaching the classes back then? Um, he did teach the class. He didn't teach all the classes at that point, but he did teach a lot of them. And my first introduction actually to, formal introduction to uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was meeting Henry Aikens at, at uh, Hickson's Academy. And um, I'd always been curious, you know, like like a lot of people, you know, it's like like guys are always like very keen to kind of jump in, you know, like whenever it's like, hey, did you see that strangle at the UFC at the weekend? It's like, yeah, yeah, pick me. I'll try it. So when I met Henry, I asked him, you know, like, well, what's it like? You know, what's a rear naked choke really like? What does it feel like to be put in one? And of course, he obliged me um, by showing me what that felt like. And um interestingly enough when when he first applied the submission i actually held my breath when he was applying the submission so i actually helped him i almost went unconscious and um you know my first day in jujitsu i'm almost <laughs> unconscious you know it's like it's not a good look so um anyway that was my introduction to jujitsu and like most guys you know at that point i was sold so um and then um and then you know, three years later of every night getting the shit beaten out of me and not and not being able to figure out what to do, you know, somehow or other I stuck with it. And um, I uh, just had a real natural liking and inclination towards doing jujitsu to the point that even after a short time of training and, and really not having an awful lot of success, um, internally I, uh, you know, I made a resolve to just stick with it until black belt well i don't know if you guys are still there but your, so your pictures are we, not there 
Yeah, yeah, we're we're still here. We're just uh, cutting off the camera just so it'll help your internet. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm so I'm good right now. I think I just it'll kind of help the stream. Just had some issues with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm gonna mm-hmm. put my camera back on so I can look at myself. Well, I like to. I'd like to dive into kind of the, uh, in, you know, continuation of your jujitsu journey. Um, you know, three times masters, no gi world champ. I'd love to hear more about really, you know, why do you compete? What, what's, what, what is it about competition that you enjoy? What made you mm. go after being a three time world champ? <laughs> okay. Um, well that, you know, it's it, the interesting thing about that is that I never, I guess I never really felt, First of all, I never really felt confident enough in my jiu-jitsu that I wanted to test it out other than in training every day. And, and secondly, that I never felt strong enough about the school that I was training in to want to represent them in a public setting. Mm. Um, in terms of in terms of like a, I, I'd say probably in terms of like full contact, or like in a striking art or some sort of, you know, maybe like a, you know, more of a, a purely, purely sort of striking art. I felt very confident with that sort of thing, but um, grappling just being a real, you know, real newcomer to the art as a whole, I really did not feel that confidence in my own ability. Neither did I feel like that's why I got into jujitsu in the first place to compete. So anyway, I didn't actually start to compete until I was a purple belt. And, um, and that was under my instructor, Adam Watts, uh, who's a, a, a black belt under the checkmat system in Orange County. And mm-hmm. so it was some, some time later. Um, in terms of competition itself, I mean, I, I competed um, because my instructor wanted me to and actually required it in, in the sense of that's how he would he would really, um, you know, check on whether people were ready for promotion or where they were at or whatever. He would use competition as the, the gauge for that. And um, personally, yeah, I'm not Coach a big Grant fan has of... has a rule that I'm not... Pardon? I'm say sorry, go again. ahead. <laughs> no, say that again. Oh, I said Coach Bryant has a rule, like no no competitions for the first six months minimum. <laughs> so. Oh, is that right? <laughs> who is that? Which, yeah. Who is that? Yeah, well, the reason why is... This... Me. Oh. So so with me, he was saying with me, like I have a rule uh-huh. that when you jump into training with me, you have to have six months under your belt with me before you're allowed to compete. Yeah. Uh, number one, it's kind of like a reverse psychology type of thing because I don't force anybody to compete. I just say you can't compete for your first six months. And everybody's like, well, why not? I want to go compete because mm. they see everybody else competing and meddling. You know, fortunately, we're kind of blessed that all of the students we've had, everybody who competes medals. Mm. And I like it like that. <laughs> so my, my idea is because, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about this because I have like a, a year long curriculum, mm. you know, and it changes every month. I need you to have at least 50% of the curriculum under your belt before you get on the mat. Cause that helps me be confident that you understand the concepts that I'm teaching mm. And uh, I feel like if you're a wild horse, I can break you in enough to put a saddle on you. Mm. So mm. that's why. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and to be honest with you, I never got into jujitsu so that I could compete. 
and especially you know around that time there really there wasn't an awful lot of outlet in terms of competitions and you know there was obviously there was the IBJJF that was that was around but you know a lot of the other stuff was not really really in place yet and it was still very niche you know jiu-jitsu was a was not a, a household name as as you guys probably know and um you know w- was pretty much synonymous with the UFC you know oftentimes that's where you would get the comment of oh you know when you t- tell people that you train jiu-jitsu they were like oh yeah is that that Uf- UFC stuff I was like yeah because <laughs> that's basically what people knew um and quite frankly there was a lot of you know pretty good grappling in the UFC back in that t- at that time um you know generally there was a you know good good um, percentage of of guys in there that were essentially grapplers so there was some good grappling to see in the UFC I think at that point um but but in terms of like the the competition scene itself um you know, really, um, I, I, I fell in love with, with the uh, submission-only ideas. And, you know, obviously I would train that way in the gym. Um, even at Hickson's, we never trained for point tournaments. Um, and that took a little while for me to get my head around doing that. And then, uh, and then also, uh, you know, get, getting into the competition scene, even as a purple belt, you know, like get, also trying to get my head around the the idea of 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 doing jujitsu to not lose was a you know was an interesting concept which fortunately I'm happy to say I never really indulged too much um, and in fact it would just infuriate me oftentimes I ended up going against Brazilians you know and they would you know get a takedown or mm. they would get a, an advantage point and then just hunker down and wait for the end of time <laughs> that's what it felt like anyway literally the end of time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I really didn't enjoy that very much. And, and I can see how, you know, there's always a way of playing the rules, whatever game you play, but to a degree that it changes the point of the sport itself. I'm just not, I'm not really that interested in that sort of thing. So consequently, yeah, it looks great on my resume, but I really don't give a shit about any world championship under the IBJJF it's really <laughs> it's really a marketing thing I really don't care and it was you know to be honest with you I had good days and bad days competing and none of it was very significant so you know to be honest it's not re- never really been a big thing in my training I've really been doing it for my own selfish reasons yeah. <laughs> I see why you and coach Brian you know, get along so well <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I, I, I have a question, something I, I wanted to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, many, one of many. So Steve made an interesting post today that I kind of want to discuss a little bit because I thought it was so cool. And this is so real in the <laughs> grappling world. So Steve made this post about superstitions and he was talking about his shorts. He had these particular shorts, these grappling shorts that he would wear. It's like these were the magic shorts. And so. This is, you know, I think back to the branding, marketing, and all this crap. So back in the day, you know, when I started, there weren't a lot of geese. You know, it was like the judo geese. We used judo geese. I mean, because I had a traditional martial arts background, I had my judo gi. I had my hapkido gi. Uh, that was about it. And then my, my judo double weaves were like hell for jujitsu, especially when you have some stinky-ass Brazilian on you. That's like juice to the gills and hasn't showered in three days and never washes his gi. <laughs> and he's like waving his, his body all over you. 
you know, you just want to throw up, and it was terrible. So I remember there's like HCK, and then when something yeah. came from Brazil, it was like, oh, this is the magic ghee that's going to make you different. Oh. Like there was like Krugens, <laughs> Corral. Uh, right. Uh, what, what was the one that Marcelo Garcia used to wear? The Keiko Hasa, yeah. which I couldn't wear because I have very wide shoulders and Keiko Hasa geese were like really narrow geese. Mm. But I was like, okay, if this is the gee that I get, I'm going to be winning my next set of matches at the next <laughs> tournament. And Jack asked me, I'm spending $200 on these stupid fucking geese that don't do anything. You know, it's just like, it's a piece of cloth, but you're so poisoned by, well, I saw a picture of Jacques Array wearing this corral. Ah, ah, this has got to be the one. Mm. You know, this is going to give me all of a sudden, like, I, I was always a huge fan of uh, Fernando Terere. Mm. And so for me, I was just like, okay, whatever gi he was wearing, I needed the Terere gi because that was going to make me, you know, whoop, Terere. Yeah, and you know, all yeah. of a sudden I was going to have my Terere breakdancing moves down. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I want to explore that with you a little bit because I thought you had such philosophical salient points about how we get we succumb to this idea of superstition with er everything mm. but for us in this podcast within grappling what makes us superstitious and, and why do we go mm. there i mean i think it's an interesting point that you brought up i mean ultimately i mean isn't all marketing based on that you know what I mean? It's like, like you said, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about I mean, it. look at Shoya Roll. I mean, it, it is a phenomena. I don't own a Shoya Roll. I've, I, oh I owned God. one of their rash guards. I was very skeptical about all of it. And, um, but, you know, I mean, I think they're a great company. I think it's incredible what they've done. And the rash guard I had was actually superb. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, how is a piece of clothing going to influence the outcome of an activity? Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking at looking yeah. at uh, I looked at a little bit on Google about about superstition. And apparently the most superstitious, superstitious sport is baseball. Apparently, if you stick gum on your helmet, that's really? supposed to be good luck. Um, <laughs> you know, stuff like <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so <laughs> and, and I've only encountered it like one time, one time before when I was in high school, when I was playing soccer, I noticed that whenever I would wear a particular pair of socks, my, my performance was always really, really good. And I literally wore those socks until they, till holes <laughs> wore in them. And literally I might as well not have been wearing socks wow. inside my boots because they, they were just finished. And I never encountered that until I started noticing that my performance would just suck in the gym. And somehow or other, I, I related that to the fact that I'm wearing these gray and red sprawls every time my performance sucked. And then maybe mm. it became that I just had a bad day at the gym. And it just so happened by coincidence that I happened to be wearing those shorts every time and noticed that. And then it became, a, you know, that, that um, connection became more and more real as it went on. But ultimately, I mean, like the way I look at it, mm. that's the same as like washing your belt after jujitsu. You know, that whole discussion, you know? Yeah, yes. Like, I, I don't, Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny. I like, I don't really care whether people wash them, don't wash them. I mean, I don't do gi jiu-jitsu, so I don't give a shit if you don't wash your gi or your, or your belt. So, uh, you know, carry on, people. Um, <laughs> but if you come to my gym and you're doing no gi, you better fucking shower. Um, but, um, but the, the same oh thing, God. but that whole idea of like, if you wash your belt, your jujitsu suffers. 
That's crazy, right? Or is it? Yeah. Oh, it's moronic. <laughs> well, you know, here, here's, uh, you know, let, let me let me uh, kind of springboard off mm. of that concept. Mm. So this week I, I was out of town for a few days for um, some, you know, my day job. I had uh, these corporate meetings I had to go to. Usually I can't stand these things, but on on uh, one of our days we had this guy as a as a motivational speaker. His name's Mark Schulman. Mm. You'll know him as the drummer for Pink for many years. Amazing drummer. He was a drummer for Billy Idol, Velvet Revolver, Cher. Mm. And so now he's a motivational speaker. And he gets up, he's drumming, he's telling all these stories. And he, one of the things that he created is he was talking about this concept of ABC. A is attitude, B is behavior, C is consequence. I look at consequence also as result. So it made me start thinking, like when I was reading your post, I'm like, okay, attitude is also... You know, when we embody an attitude, that's a it's, it's a feeling, it's a belief, mm. right? So, a lot of times, our feelings or our beliefs can also be a superstition, where like if I wear these socks, I'm going to do well mm. today, right? So we embody this attitude of confidence and self assurity in order to affect our behavior. B, and as we have that leading behavior of success and and determination, that ends up influencing our consequence or results which would be some type of win or you know taking something to the next mm. level so i actually saw it as something like when you posted that i was like oh my god this is so weird because i just went through this motivational seminar this week about attitude you know influences your behavior your behavior influences your consequence or results and embracing your opportunities and looking at things as um Instead of saying, I have to do this, I have to go do the laundry, or I have to take my kids to school. It's like, I get to do the laundry. I get to do, to, you know, take my kids to school. You know, I get to get on this podcast with, you know, some amazing guys. Where all of a sudden it changes your mindset, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think, you know, our superstition can lead us to a positive attitude and a positive belief um, if we don't take it down a negative road where it then starts to create or develop anxiety or some type of OCD where it's just like, if I don't have my socks, I'm going to perform mm. poorly. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it's almost like a double edged sword. I think the superstition can definitely enhance. I mean, look, we both lived in India, Steve. So we know what it's like. The Indians have these weird rules. Don't shave on a Wednesday after 7 mm -hmm. PM, you know, like weird stuff. Like, it's just like, wait, mm. what? If a woman's not married by this time, she has to get married to a tree. They have like these weird superstitions. <laughs> yeah. Like India is the land of superstitions, even though we both have, you know, we embrace the yoga philosophy, a particular tradition that we both, um, a, a very particular tradition that we both follow. But there's a lot of indigenous superstitions in India and other cultures around the world that you're like, well, wait a minute. I didn't get to shave this morning. No, I'm going to shave tonight because I want my face to be mm. clean. It's not going to all of a sudden mean my hair is going to fall out or a witch is going to come and bite me in the ass in the middle mm -hmm. of the night. Even though, you know, some part of folklore in the, a little village in India will tell you if you like, I'm, I'm not making a joke, guys. If there are some weird rules and superstitions in India, if you shave in the evening on a particular day, you know, a witch will come and like all kinds of weird shit, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so we have to be careful of not having anxiety, creating anxiety, you know, in our performance and grappling, you know, or, or, or being a slave to our superstition or being a slave to 
well, if I can't do it like this, then I cannot have a good attitude. Therefore, my behavior is going to suck and I will mm. fail. Mm -hmm. So it's about really how do we, again, then getting to another of Steve's posts, which was, I thought, beautiful and amazing about what's more important, actions or destiny. Oh. Actions are more important than destiny because actions will shape mm. your destiny. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So how do we create our actions? And I'm looking at all this. I mean, I, I think we've all been there where we drive to class. I mean, I, I remember, you know, in, in my glory days of training, I'm driving to class. I'm going, shit, I don't want to go to class today. If this guy's there or this guy's there, he's going to murder me or this is going to happen or he's going to wreck my neck or this. And you have this panic in the car, right? Where you're like, it's affecting your attitude right off the bat. You have this attitude of anxiety. You, you're embodying anxiety or depression. And then your behavior, maybe your behavior all of a sudden on the mat starts to suck or you start to suffer. Mm -hmm. Your results start to suffer because you're not just going there to just have fun and to learn versus had I really set, had a mindset of my actions today is I want to learn to just do this. You know, if most of these schools, they just teach random moves anyways, unlike PCI where we do one position a month and you drill the shit out of it. Most of these schools, you're just learning random stuff. So you're going to learn random stuff. It then creates further anxiety in terms of, well, how am I going to develop myself today? Well, let me see if I can, how many times I can escape out of side control mm. position, right? Let's see if I can get out. Let's see if I cannot get choked from the mouth yeah. and just practice that and then have those goals, have that intention and that positive attitude where you can have that, that determining behavior of, well, I'm going to move forward mm. with this. And I'm going to drive and I'm not going to give mm. up, right? So my result is, okay, well, let's say yesterday I got choked out five times. Maybe today I got choked out twice. That's an improvement. That's a positive yeah. improvement. And right. has nothing to do with the shorts you're wearing. It has nothing to do with the shorts you're wearing. But that's a big thing. I mean, it's a so, big thing. You so don't that. you think then? It, you know, they, everybody has a lucky Yeah, rush yeah. Point. I mean, in terms of what you're talking about, you know, I mean, first of all, I thought I was the only person that showed up to training feeling like that. I thought everyone just showed up like, yeah, no biggie. It's just training. Oh. I thought it was just me. But, um, but as no, you... No, I, I think it's everybody. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, maybe it, it, it kind of indicates your motivations in terms of, you know, whether you're externally motivated by things or internally more motivated by things in terms of like, a, you know, perhaps if somebody is more, for want of a better way of putting it right now, more mentally strong, that they're not affected by those kind of external mm. um, imperceptibles, if you like, like something that's not actually based in reality, it's more based mm. in the imagination. Or if somebody is more externally motivated, then you're going to see different signs that are either going to encourage you or discourage you, I suppose. Right. And, you know, to be honest, I got over that. I mean, it doesn't yeah. change the fact that I couldn't wait to, you know, I actually asked like three people if they wanted these shorts and no one wanted them. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and uh, anyway, <laughs> but, but if, <laughs> so it was like confirmed, but uh but uh, eventually, I, anyway, I gave them away. But before that, um, I remember one day um, I went to training, had a great training session, and I came home. And, I, and it was literally, I was walking into the bathroom to take a shower. And I looked down and realized I was wearing those shorts. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're good. It's nothing to do with the shorts. I can just get rid of them and move on. It's like... <laughs> 
And uh, so <laughs> consequently, I've never, um, I've never had that situation occur again. I do have preferences in terms of, of which of my gear mm. I do like wearing, but uh, it's a preference. It's not a superstition, fortunately. Mm. And I, I wonder if, uh, if there are people, in, so, like in other professional sports, I wonder if in professional grappling, if there is anybody that actually feels that way, you know? I wonder if the, I, I don't know if I've noticed anybody's oh, I, outfits. I'm sure. I'm but, sure there are. You know, I, I have a feeling that if we if we start going down that rabbit hole, you're going to have people that are like, I have to have my fingers taped a certain way, otherwise I'm not going to mm. perform well, or I have to put my you know my left leg first through my pant before I put my yeah. right leg. Or, you, you know, I'm, I guarantee there's superstitions because every sport in the world, look at Rafael Nadal, the tennis player, the tennis legend, mm. right? He has like some crazy ass superstitions about how he had to roll his socks and how he had to tap the tennis racket against his feet before he could play like weird mm. stuff. And he's not the only one. I mean, I think like, here's the thing. You, all of us who've done this for a long time and continue, say, to black belt you have to have a certain amount of neuroticism and OCD to do it because we already know 90% of people never make it from white to blue belt. Okay. Never. Most people don't ever make it to the end. So, and on top of that, 99% of the people in the world, 99.9 will never start. So how about, how about that for like a total mind warp? Out of 8 billion people on the planet, 99.9999% will never start, uh, a, a, say, a grappling, a grappling yeah. art. And I'm using that as, as a whole because I'm looking at everything from judo, jiu-jitsu, catch, sambo, all that. So 99.999% of the world will never start a grappling mm. art. Then when you get it down to the people that will start, 90% will never go to stage two, which is white to blue mm. as an example. How weird yeah, is that? Yeah, it's amazing. And, I, and then, you, so, the, in order to get there, you have to be a certain level mm. of neurotic. I mean, you definitely have to be obsessed, that's for sure. And, you know, I could... I, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's... it's um, I, guess, I guess it depends on, on uh, what you're obsessed about. But, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, mm -hmm. to my mind, indicate anything that's unhealthy. I mean, you know being enthusiastic about a team sport that you don't even play. Um, I mean, you see it all the time. I, I, yeah. you, know, and, you know, people, will, you know, I've got friends in England that will argue me to the death or to the point of bloodshed about their team that they never even play that sport, have no intention of doing it. But they'll tell you about all these yeah. pros that are not doing it right yeah. and how they should do it better and, you know, and, and, uh, and how their team is better than your team and why. And, you know, it's like, it's a phenomenon. But... Nevertheless, you know, that, you know, that sort of enthusiasm channeled into action, like what you were talking about, you know, can be very beneficial. And I have to say mm. that when I first started jujitsu, I started jujitsu at 37. And at that time, there were not a mm. lot of older guys on the mat. I'm happy to say that there are a lot more now. I don't know if that's because of the popularity of jujitsu, that there are just more people doing it. Um, I don't I think maybe the training methodology has changed over the years. I think certainly in uh, a lot of jiu-jitsu schools, um, you know, people are, are recognizing that there are a lot more hobbyists and there are pro potential pro grapplers coming to the sport. And therefore, 
the training has to mm -hmm. be a little bit more, you know, reflective of that in the sense that, you know, if I'm, you know, I've got to play with my kids and, you know, maybe go to work, you know, right, you know, half an hour after I get off the mat, you know, maybe not, you know, like go for that inside heel hook as, as uh, vehemently as, as what you might ordinarily, <laughs> you know, kind of appreciate it. You know, I, I always remember I was training with um, uh, Joker's yeah. Wild in uh, Orange County and when we first moved to Orange okay. County and I, <laughs> I remember it was a particular section session and uh, we were, we were doing MMA training we were doing um, just some striking. And so I told, I was like, Hey man, listen, I was with this particular training partner and uh, he was a pro fighter at the time. And I was like, Hey dude, listen, I've got this, uh, I've got this job that I'm going to tomorrow in New York. It's a new company. I've never met them before. Please do not, mark me up so we're doing a striking s session yeah. right and it's just it's only we're just moving hands he kicked me in the head and gave me a black eye yeah and so <laughs> you know if we were doing kickboxing you know hey you know <laughs> it happens but we weren't even doing that so anyway yeah. um i'm not going to dig him out by stating his name but nevertheless uh, you, you can if you want. This is unfiltered and right, raw Eric podcast. Apple, wherever you, you are, can say whatever the hell you want here, as, yeah. as raw as it gets. Eric. <laughs> We've already offended the Brazilians <laughs> earlier on. Yeah. We name okay. names. We name names. It's going to get a lot worse. I got more people coming on. Yeah, yeah. see there you Eric go. Eric Apple, wherever you are, it's it's that that's a problem. Yeah, you fucked up Steve right before you had to go to your job, dick. I was just a blue belt at the time, but I'm not a blue belt anymore. Unbelievable. It's so unprofessional. Exactly. <laughs> so come on up to the mountains. <laughs> He's going to choke no you in problem. the yurt. <laughs> He's going to come. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that kind of nonsense. I mean, you have to measure. It's it's so important to measure your your uh, your mm. training with people you know I, I think that that's critical and it's funny you know you go to these schools and they say oh leave your ego out the door okay, <laughs> i love that well guess what <laughs> these are some of the most arrogant egotistical people that i've ever mm. met in my life i mean if we let's get let's just get nasty here for a second if we look at the history of you know bjj right these are people that were like literally thugs going into different people's martial arts schools and beating them up and doing all these challenges to say we're better. They beat up Rufino Dos Santos because mm. he beat them with the lead pipe and they went to jail. We talked about that in the previous podcast. <laughs> uh, changed the rules of grappling so that they mm. could win because they were getting thrown and tossed around and they were getting pinned like crazy. So they said and they say no more epon, no more throws. Let's just monkey around on the floor and be you know play from the guard. You know, it's just like one thing after the other. Then they start changing. If, if you notice, over the years, and wait till Todd Nathanson comes on and he starts giving a history of how these guys started changing belt rankings and levels. Magically, they're like, oh, got too many Westerners or, you know, too many North Americans uh, getting advanced. So we have to slow down the belt ranking system. And all of a sudden, well, it's going to take you five years for this stripe. And six, like, who decided yeah. this? You know, you get a handful of, of, of family members at the top who, as we know, gave themselves black belts, mm. right? They were not handed a black belt by 
Maeda. They were not handed a black ball. I haven't got that Dakota far Khan. in uh, Drysdale's they, they book They kind of gave themselves their own style. You'll get there, my friend. You'll get there. It was a great book, great read. If you guys have not read it, man, it's that Drysdale book is uh, opening. What's it called? Opening the Closed Guard. I'm still yeah. waiting for the movie. I yeah. was waiting for I'm like, dude, Rob, what are you doing? I, I wanted this movie. But the book's, the book's fantastic because everything, if you guys haven't read this book, Opening the Closed Guard, it's interviews and mm. it's sections. So the one thing I'll disagree with is he was saying that Fado was a Gracie lineage when the Fada lineage says that they're not a Gracie right. lineage. So I don't know where, where that's coming from. But, yeah. you know, that's another story. Maybe we can get him on that. But at the end of the day, why are you saying, well, you you can only be this many stripes? Okay, well, says who? Like, who are you to say that who's this many stripes and that mm. many stripes? You know, it's, it's kind of a joke. At the same time, though, there has to be some type of regulation because, you know, some people know this, some people don't. Prior to me starting PCI Jiu-Jitsu... I was I was teaching at a place where I think the guy was honestly was a fake black belt. Really? Um, because like I was teach yeah, I was teaching like some of these white belts and stuff and they started smoking him. Like they were passing his guard in three seconds and everybody's hitting a double wrist lock on him and choking wow. the shit out of him. So I was just like, Hey wait, how is this guy how's this guy really a black and every time I said, Why don't you teach something? He didn't want to teach anything. He'd just sit there and watch. He had like this blank stare on his face when I was watching. He'd sit in the corner, watch mm. and then leave. Then, you know, ends up, you know, basically saying, well, he's got to teach his curriculum and then, you know, whatever. I ended up doing the whole PCI thing. But it's like this guy's like sneaky, sneaky as all else. And I'm like going and he's the type of person that was giving out like candy, right, to little kids on <laughs> Halloween. This dude gives out stripes like every other week. Stripes and belts. Here you go. Here is one for you because like. He was he was doing like uh, what do you, what do you call it? like just that that was his way of retention mm. right, and I see like this guy's got like purple belts that are in my opinion aren't even, wouldn't even be a mm. one stripe white belt. So there has to be something to be said for quality control. It's just not the IBJJF. Yeah, I agree. That's an interesting right, and unfortunately there isn't what I see an amateur organization to to regulate. Yeah, I mean that's a it's an interesting. Uh... Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because obviously, you know, just having a free-for-all and there being no organization, that's not a great idea either. I mean, I just think it, it's funny, actually, I started reading that book and, um, you know, I've been talking with a few different friends and stuff like that. And one, one friend was talking about how there's these guys from a place called uh, Standard Jiu-Jitsu and apparently... And forgive me, but I, I don't remember the name of the instructor, but he has, he's developed this idea that comes from, what's it called? Ecological, the ecological approach, where he does not teach any technique in his school. Mm -hmm. It's all based on play. And apparently his students are meeting with mm -hmm. a lot of success. Anyway, to the point that you're making, I think that there are many different ways that people can advance in jujitsu or in any kind of martial art, or any activity for that matter, if you want to expand it out. But also at the same time, there clearly there has to be you know markers and waypoints that indicate where you're at. But in terms of like, I think it's interesting how people get into these arguments about the origins of jujitsu and where it came from and, and the tradition of why we're doing what we're doing. And a lot of times it's very, the beginnings are very arbitrary. Let's say, Let's say, for example, 
that it's actually true. Yeah. That Elio Gra I mean, there's an interview in the beginning of that book where a transcript where Elio Gracie is saying, point blank, I invented jujitsu as you know it. He invented it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so since he invented it, uh, I've decided to invent something different based on it. You know what I mean? What's the difference, right? I mean, yeah. who is Elio yeah. Gracie to say one way or the other? The Gracie family, if they'd never met Maeda, let's say, would be another Brazilian family that we'd never heard of from Brazil, yeah. right? And somehow or other, they positioned themselves, Carlos yeah. and then Elio, as the main source of jiu-jitsu in the 20th century, you know, for the, the rest of the world. And personally, I don't really have a problem with it. Someone had to do it. But to think that they were the only people doing it, that would be crazy. That would be crazy. Yeah. So I think that there's... Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I just think that yeah. there's, there's room you know, for all different kinds of, of grappling styles and stuff like that. And hey, let's face it, you know, professional grapplers are a very small percentage of the grappling community. And most people are doing it just because they love it. Right. So stripes. Yeah. And I think the more you mix, yeah. it changes, right? So it's, it, it, you kind of get this hybridization because there's no such thing as a purist. I, I was talking to, you know, I know, Joel Bain talks about this. I talk about this with the students. There's no such thing as a particular XYZ mm. purist, right? There's what's a mm. BJJ purist? You know, what, what would that mean? What's a catch wrestling purist? There isn't. What's a sambo purist? Everything is mixed. Everything's hybridized. You know, basically what we're doing is you're taking kind of what works and you're using that. Mm. I know we talked about in the last podcast, Buchecha said he had to throw out 85% of his sport bjj for mm. mma when he's doing one championship mm. because it didn't work sport bjj does not work for mma according to bachecha right even gordon ryan i think went on record to say that for mma combat sambo is far more effective because you're in a top position than sport mm. bjj okay well i'm glad a couple people are starting to recognize that because I don't want to be the only one with the bullhorn saying that because everybody thinks that I'm crazy or, you know, a few of us that say that. It's like back in the day, um, right? So, remember when uh, when Eddie Bravo first got you know, blasted mm -hmm. by everybody for talking about how, you know, when you're training for the UFC, you know, maybe you just shouldn't wear a gi. And everyone just went fucking nuts. Do you remember? This is like way back. You know, when he was talking about, you know, if, you, if you're going to yeah. engage in a competition where you're not wearing that kind of clothing, why train for it in that kind of clothing? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it totally made sense. And I don't understand why, why things get, you know, all lumped in and everything's conflated into like, you know, this gi-centric universe where if you don't wear, you know, the cloth, mm -hmm. then, you know, obviously what you're doing is not legit. Mm -hmm. But somehow, that that is the subtext. Well, I, I yeah, I, I think what it is for most of those people that are very just one way or the other. You know, obviously the percentage of uh, extremists are kind of growing on either side, but obviously I, I still believe that there's more people doing yeah. gi than no gi. I think it's really just about mm. business, right? But at the end of the day, like I always say, is I why mm. do I teach both? 
I, half of my classes are in the gi, half of my classes are in the no gi. There's a very specific reason why. Number one, we don't live in a nudist colony. Everybody you see wears clothes. Wait, is your, is your, are you no? All, they will all say the same thing. All you these have people wear clothes in your no gi class, right? What's that? Or is catch wrestling a whole different like Greek Greek experience yeah. that you're going for there? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no, we're not we're not in the nude. We're just I just wanted they, to clarify. They, they, they yeah. wear they wear Steve's yeah. lucky shorts. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know what I'm saying is like they say, Well, you don't need to grab anything. I'm just like, Well, you know, here's the thing. If you if you are on the street, chances are somebody who attacks you is gonna be wearing a hoodie or a jacket or something to cover. They're gonna wear pants. You have to learn mm. how to pin and pull and you have to learn how to drag it to, to get them off of you. But also when you break it down to what what frustrates people about each? It's very simple, in my opinion. From the bottom position, a defensive position, it's good to learn with the gi because you have to learn how to escape without mm. slipping out. And in the top position, it's good to also learn no gi because you have to learn how to control somebody without just holding a piece of cloth and pinning mm. somebody down with mm. a piece of cloth. So that's why, in my opinion, both are, 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 are equally mm. important. I teach both an mm. equal amount of time. At the same time, right, and I, this is how I emphasize in my school, I detest sport jujitsu. <laughs> so we do not do, uh, we follow the Chris Howder rules, yeah. principles, okay? Number one, be the guy on top. Number two, when you're on top, stay on top. Number three, have a guard you shall not pass. Number four, always remember new, rule number one, and don't be seduced by the lazy, rewarding nature of the guard. So nobody in my school is allowed to pull guard unless we're training specifically for some mm. type of sport tournament. All of our matches start, sta all of our training starts standing. That's why we have that saying, start standing or stay home. Right? A couple guys asked me to already make a t-shirt of it. Maybe we will. Yeah, start standing good. or stay home. It's very wrestling based. It's very judo based when we're wearing the gi. And you have to learn because that's every match totally. starts like that. And every time you're walking around on the street, you, you're, you're standing, you're walking. So you have to know how to defend yourself from a standing position and how to take control of somebody mm. from a standing position, you know? But I, I know a lot mm. of people don't like doing that. They, they, they're like, oh, don't do that. Just sit on the floor. Oh, don't do that. That hurts. I'm like, okay. We've had this discussion a million times, even you and me, Steve. It's like, this is submission grappling. If it hurts, tap. If you don't like it hurting, go mm. pick badminton or something else where, you know, or now what's popular now, pickleball. Mm. Go play pickleball. That's Okay. But if you're going to do submission grappling, get ready yeah. for pain. Right. 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 It's really simple. But, uh, but I'm curious, Steve, Steve you, tell, them, tell everybody what made you gravitate towards Nogi mm. and when did you? Okay. Hey, everyone. So, Coach Brian, again, hope you've enjoyed part one of our two-part series with the legend Steve Silvers. Stay tuned for part two to answer that question next week. What made him transfer exclusively to no gi and we're going to open up that discussion and a whole lot more so see you next week